Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel, broadcasting remotely. A lot happens in 19 years, but most of us remember exactly what we were doing when news trickled in on the morning of September 11, 2001, about a plane hitting the World Trade Center. I lived in Pittsburgh at the time, about an hour from Shanksville, Pennsylvania, where the fourth plane, United Airlines Flight 93, crashed into a field. I called my parents immediately. Driving home early from work, downtown Pittsburgh was a ghost town by midday. And I remember my roommates and I watching President George W. Bush address the nation that night. Good evening. Today, our fellow citizens, our way of life, our very freedom came under attack in a series of deliberate and deadly terrorist acts. The victims were in airplanes or in their offices secretaries, businessmen and women, military and federal workers, moms and dads, friends and neighbors. Thousands of lives were suddenly ended by evil, despicable acts of terror. So much happened after that day that changed U.S. relations abroad. But how does the legacy of 9-11 affect our nation's foreign policy today, especially as Americans look towards voting in the presidential election? Coming up, we talk about that with Elon Goldenberg from the Center for New American Security and Caroline Sayech, associate professor and acting director of the Global Islamic Studies Program at Connecticut College. First, Connecticut's ties to 9-11 are personal. 65 state residents died on that day. Five were on the planes. The others worked in the Twin Towers. That's according to our state historian. And there were others with Connecticut ties who were among the nearly 3,000 people killed that day. My next guest reported from Ground Zero during the first two weeks after 9-11. Joining us on Zoom is Terry Sheridan. He's now the news director at WSHU. Terry, welcome to our show. Hey, good morning, Lucy. You can also join our conversation, 888-720-9677. You can also share your thoughts on our Facebook page or on Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, so, Terry, it's uh, hard to believe it's been 19 years. I mentioned you were a reporter at the time. You were planning a regular day covering politics in New York City. Uh, tell us about when you first heard what happened. Well, yeah, I was working. I was li living in here in Connecticut, and I was uh, working for 1010 Winds Radio in New York City, the commercial radio station, and also doing freelance work for uh, WBGO out of Newark, New Jersey, as their New York City uh, freelancer. And it was the day of the 2001 mayoral primary, and I was on the phone uh, at my home. And I had the TV on like I had every morning, the radio on, listening to the news. And I'm on the phone with, the, uh, with one of my editors talking about how we were going to cover the primaries that night. When all of a sudden you heard, you know, the, 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 the breaking news sound or the flash. And just looking around, I remember looking around at the TV and seeing the smoke coming out of the World Trade Center, one of the towers. And it was just my editor and myself just was like, okay, I'm on my way. And I set off. Mm. Tell us about your journey into the city. How far did you get? 
I got I, I got all the way down to St. Vincent's Hospital on that first day, but uh, I drove in from Connecticut. Uh, and as you were saying, I was making calls to my family and, you know, my brother was worked. He didn't work in the uh, trade center, but he worked in the area. Uh, so I called, tried to get a hold of him. I tried to get a hold of uh, my mother um, and I made it over the bridge on Broadway into Manhattan at the very tip of Manhattan, right before they shut it down. I was lucky. That was the last bridge that they shut down, but I could only drive down as far as about 178th street, in which case I just started walking. I took a cab. I actually did hop a, a ride with uh, police who were responding to the scene for a bit. And uh, about, after about three hours, I, I made it down to St. Vincent's Hospital, which was the nearest mm -hmm. trauma center on that first day. Mm -hmm. Who were some of the first people that you interviewed, Terry? The people, the first people that I interviewed were basically people who were either looking for information about their loved ones or uh, and, and a site that still, you know, I get emotional about was around St. Vincent's Hospital there were thousands of people who were lined up and they were mm -hmm. alongside of signs which mm -hmm. had A, A negative, B, O, people who just decided that they they needed to show up and donate blood because at that time we had no idea what the what the situation was, what we were looking what we were looking at. You're hearing Terry Sheridan again. He's news director at WSHU. Uh, back on September 11th, 2001, he was a commercial radio reporter, and he reported from Ground Zero during those first two weeks after 9/11. It was certainly an emotional day. I remember Terry uh, in the the days after the signs that people put up that they didn't know where their loved ones were. I it, it really it really was and one of the this was about the, towards the end of, of the time because I was spending the overnights there you know talking to the first mm -hmm. responders people you know who were still looking for information about their families and there was a firefighter in his bunker jacket you know his full firefighter gear and he was coming off duty and he was just looking uh, at the posters of the missing people, and they were usually clustered in an area. And he was just reading each name, and then he would touch the photo, and then he would make the sign of the cross and go on to the next one. And you know that was a that was an emotionally powerful moment for me, and obviously for him. Um, putting aside my reporter uh, instincts, I let him have his moments because it was just it was just so powerful. Mm. Tell us about the first responders who responded that day, uh, not just from the New York region, but even across the country. People were coming in in the days after to help. And what did you see in those rescue efforts and recovery efforts eventually? Well, uh, eventually, yes, everything, even for two weeks after the initial uh, attack, it was still being labeled as a as a rescue mm -hmm. effort. So at first it was the obviously the New York City Police Department, the New York City Fire Department. So they were the ones who were inside or around the buildings when they collapsed. Then we saw local response from around the suburbs. So you would have the firefighters coming down from Connecticut. You would have them coming in from Long Island or across from New Jersey. So that was like the next two days. And then after that, you saw the response from around the country where firefighters would, would send a truck. And they were there basically at this point to dig through the rubble uh, looking you know, for survivors. 
drivers. But something that often gets uh, forgotten was that ordinary people uh, showed up to offer whatever support they could, whether it was to support the families who were going through, you know, the worst time of their lives in uncertainty, whether it was doctors, whether it was nurses, whether it was clergy who just came down to to offer any help that they could. Um, and after, obviously, when you have something like that happening, there's a little bit of confusion. But after a day or two, it was it was pretty well organized. The Red Cross was there. They were feeding the workers. Um, several of the major food companies, uh, fast food companies, had set up uh, tents, and they were just feeding the workers as they went through. So it, it was when you saw how everyone came to New York's rescue or New York's hey, aid, mm-hmm. you know, that was quite powerful, too. We know now that many of the people who responded, Terry, uh, have health uh, impacts. Can you talk about uh, what happened to those first responders who were part of uh, those recovery efforts? Well, again, many of the the firefighters, many of the police officers, many of the construction workers who actually lifted the heavy rubble out, as well as other volunteers, uh, they are suffering from 9-11 cancers. There are 38 cancers that are recognized by the federal government. Uh, these are rare cancers. It's not such, it, it's not as if you're, oh, you have um, lung cancer or you have uh, colon cancer. They're, they're rare cancers of the lungs, uh, rare cancers of the, um, um, you know, uh, immune system and also, uh, you know, blood cancers. But there are also other symptoms, too. There, for instance, there are, you know, uh, reflux diseases that are dis- 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 disabling. And it's also the people who lived in the neighborhood. So it's not just the first responders. It's the people who lived in the neighborhood. 300,000 people were working in the neighborhood or are worked in the neighborhood in the days and years after that. It's from people who lived downwind of the uh, plume as it, uh, you know, bellowed for, for weeks. And then it's also students and teachers there. So a fund was set up and all these people are eligible to register in case something happens. Now, what we are seeing is that in the past, I would say five years, there has been a spike of people who thought that they were okay and were going to get through it. But you go to the doctor with a chest cold and then find out they have stage four cancer. So uh, that is one of the battles that is being fought to and was fought uh, last year to provide funding for them and provide funding for their families in, in the event that they passed on. And we should highlight that uh, the first responders really had to fight to have those illnesses that you mentioned uh, even recognized so that they could get some compensation for for their medical care, Terry. Right. That was that was a multi-year fight. I mean, the first uh, time was in uh, was back in 2002 and then 2003. But it was wasn't really anything. It was like, all right, pain and suffering. Here's five thousand dollars. But it wasn't. To the Zudroga Act uh, that was signed into law by President Obama in 2011, that a, a system was set up to make sure that the what happens going forward uh, con- continues to go forward. In other words, that you know people who are coming down with illness now will be covered, or the children of those people who lost a, a parent and suffered economic damage, that they will be compensated, you know, for a long time. 
Mm. I understand that comedian John Stewart got involved to help uh, with that uh, fight for reauthorization for this compensation fund. Uh, WSHU spoke with a number of 9-11 survivors last year uh, who were also uh, fighting for this reauthorization of funding to the Victims Compensation Fund, including first responder New York PD Detective Luis Alvarez, who testified before Congress alongside John Stewart. Uh, Detective Alvarez died from cancer several months later before the funding was ultimately authorized. Uh, your station also spoke with John Field, who was a demolition supervisor who lost part of his foot at Ground Zero. He became an important activist for the 9-11 community. This is what Field told WSHU's full story last year. Many people have moved on since 9-11, and rightfully so. It's your programmed as a human being. But for those in the 9-11 community that, that suffer, it's the longest day in the history of days that just hasn't ended for us. That's a really important point to, to hear uh, John Field make, Terry, uh, that uh, for people, again, impacted, they'll never forget that day while the rest of us, our lives go on. It's, that's exactly, you know, exactly right, because um, it would be like any day that you remember if you lost a loved one, you know, so if you were the family of one of those who died, you know, that day, obviously, but for the first responders, it's the, it's, they're either sick or they're afraid of getting sick. And I, and I don't mean that afraid that they're scared, but it's just like, okay, what is, is this cough? Is this a cough or a sore throat? Or is this the beginning of something better? And then that goes through all the feelings that you would have. It's like, okay, what happens next? What happens next? What ha- what's going to happen to my family, you know, and, and down the line. You mentioned these rare cancers that uh, survivors and first responders um, have, but we also know respiratory problems uh, were was something that a lot of people experienced. And now that we have COVID-19 uh, around us, Terry, do we know how uh, that has impacted these first responders and others who already have these underlying health conditions? Right, because one of the problems is is that if they have the cancer, obviously they are susceptible to anything that affects the lungs. But also, if they're going through chemotherapy or radiation, that knocks out their immune system. Now, we do know a couple of things. The Victims' Compensation Fund issued a directive that if someone who is in the registry and um, dies of covid they are still eligible so at least that has been recognized you know where on the death certificate it says you died of covid 19 you're still eligible you know for compensation and help now the latest numbers that we have is of uh, late august where 1400 first responders have covid 191 have been hospitalized and 44 have died and that's from the world trade center health program uh, numbers that they have so again it's still very early in the game we do know that it is affecting uh, 9-11 uh, uh, first responders 9-11 you know uh, victims still mm-hmm. and we also know too that there's other things that are going on for instance um, there is new research that says they are three times the rate of the general population to suffer from dementia and other forms of memory loss and they think it's because of a combination uh, of what they breathed in which is still not fully understood and the uh, PS- PTSD that they suffered working on the pile and in the days after the pile. Mm. Well, thank you for sharing that with us. Terry Sheridan, news director of WSHU, uh, he reported uh, from Ground Zero during the first two weeks after 9-11. Terry, thank you for joining us today. You're welcome.
This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up, we're going to talk about whether the legacy of 9-11 continues to shape America's foreign policy today. You can join us too, 888-720-9677. You can also share your thoughts on our Facebook page or on Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel, broadcasting remotely. Nearly 20 years later, should 9-11 still shape U.S. foreign policy decisions? My next guests have some interesting perspectives to share on that question. Joining us now via Zoom is Caroline Saez, Associate Professor of Government and International Relations and Acting Director of the Global Islamic Studies Program at Connecticut College. Caroline, welcome back to the show. Thank you for having me. Also with us on Zoom is Elon Goldenberg, Director of the Middle East Security Program at the Center for New American Security. Elon, welcome to the show. Great to be here. You know, I asked uh, Terry Sheridan when he was a reporter what he remembered about that day. Elon, what do you remember about that day and how it, it shaped uh, your interests? Well, yeah, actually, like for me, um, I was downtown uh, working as an investment banking analyst at a college. Um, mm. So I was just a few blocks away from the Trade Center. Um, and I'd long had an interest in the Middle East and foreign policy, and which had shaped my views. But that experience of that day, like the long walk back uptown, um, you know, across 80 blocks uh, of New York City, like the fear, the chaos and everything, um, for me really shaped my decision to go back into foreign policy and to focus on Middle East issues um, as somebody who had already studied Arabic and kind of understood the region and was concerned even back then that um, we were suddenly going to be spending a lot of more time focusing on the Middle East than we had been before in our foreign policy, but that a lot of people who were going to be focusing on it hadn't really taken the time to, to learn about it or experience the region. Um, and I thought maybe I could do some good. So for me, it was definitely, in addition to just the, the personal remembrance, something that put me kind of where I am today. Mm. Caroline, can I ask uh, what you were doing on that day 19 years ago? Sure. Um, at that time, I was actually finishing up my PhD at New York University and also teaching there. So I, I believe I was sitting on the subway when that announcement came on that said, uh, our nation is under attack. Uh, subway uh, service is now suspended. And then, you know, similar to Elon, uh, spending hours and hours just trying to walk home or figure out what was going on. So it's a day that, you know, is seared in my memory as it is for everyone else who was um, directly uh, affected by it. And, you know, basically all of us as a nation, mm -hmm. um, we are, we'll really never be the same after 9-11. Elon, fill in some context for us. Remind us about uh, the world back in uh, 2001. So this was, you know, about a decade after, or a little more after the end of the Cold War. Um, talk about U.S. position in the world. And when this happens, you know, how it really did, was it a shift for uh, the world and us and how we related uh, to other countries? Sure. Um, well, we were in the middle of what you call sort of the ultimate unipolar moment, right? After the, after the um, collapse of the Soviet Union um, in 1991, really 1989, starting with the fall of the Berlin Wall, um, 
you know, the 90s were a period where like the U.S. led the global economy. We had no real peer competitors. We just kind of felt like from a security perspective, we were entirely shielded from all these challenges. Um, you know, we were in the, the great, you know, uh, democracy won. Everything was going to be hunky-dory and great. Globalization was the, the name of the game. Um, and, um, you know, that day really reshapes American foreign policy afterwards, much in the same way you see these huge moments like World War I and World War II, we can get into it later, and how they, mm-hmm. and even now what we're dealing with with COVID-19, um, reshape. This, this becomes the mantra. It becomes after 9-11, counterterrorism becomes the number one priority uh, for policymakers, but also it becomes, and this is even, I think, more important, the window through which so many Americans view the world and view foreign policy. Suddenly, like, counterterrorism in the Middle East jump to the very top of the agenda um, and, and really stay there and have stayed there for the last 20 years. That may finally be changing, um, even as presidents and foreign policy experts in the last few years have started to say, hmm, maybe we've been doing too much in the Middle East. Um, the American public is still just so... The, the, the common feelings of pain and vulnerability uh, that came from that day are so seared into the public's mind that it, it has made it really hard to, to pivot to anything else. Mm. Even today, we have troops in Iraq and Afghanistan, Elon. That might surprise some Americans when we think about all the attention on the drawdown and how our nation can fully extricate itself uh, two decades later. Yeah, and some of those troops were born after 9-11 at this point. Which, which boggles the mind. Um, but, you know, you look, for example, at President Obama, right? He um, came in in 2008 under promise of, you know, ending the Iraq war. Um, and pretty significantly pulled us back from a lot of these conflicts. Um, but even he was forced to get drawn back in uh, when you had the rise of ISIS. Um, and, you know, ISIS... Part of it was, yeah, ISIS represented a challenge and a threat that the U.S. needed to sort of intervene and stop um, because of direct threat to the U.S. homeland and to some of our allies. But it was blown dramatically, I think, out of proportion if you look at the level of threat versus how much attention it got in the media. I mean, you compare the impact of, you know, how much we've spent on COVID-19 and the impacts of that on the world or the impact of something like World War II versus ISIS, right, which was, you know, a few thousand fighters, you know, in Iraq and Syria. Um, And yet, if you look back at the American media coverage and public opinion, um, just dominated the news there for a few months. And so much of that had to do with the legacy of 9-11. And so even if a president wants to get out, even if President Obama says, I really want to pivot to Asia, um, with the American public so focused on, you know, their own personal experiences, you know, come from this day, Um, It just wasn't politically possible. You're hearing Elon Goldenberg, director of the Middle East Security Program at the Center for New American Security here on Where We Live. Also with us is Caroline Sayed, associate professor of government and international relations and acting director of the Global Islamic Studies Program at Connecticut College as we talk about how 9-11 has shaped foreign policy and what it means uh, for the next two decades. Uh, Caroline, when we think about uh, what happened after 9-11, again, the war in Afghanistan and then the U.S. invading Iraq in 2003. This idea, as, as uh, 
Elon mentioned, our obsession with counterterrorism, this idea of a war on terror where you're really fighting an idea, that really changed uh, what we thought about when we thought about war. That's right. Yes, I would say that, you know, we should not downplay the importance of uh, terrorism or its possible reach and um, uh, the need for the United States to respond after 9-11. But I think what's uh, maybe more important is to think about the framing mm -hmm. of the September 11 attacks and the framing of the uh, September 11 attacks as this grand war on terror that needs to be militarized that comes along with interventions, right? We have to go and fight and kill the terrorists and stop them from having a safe haven, you know, fix the conditions that, that might um, harbor terrorists. And the, the big question is whether this strategy was successful or not. And I would say that um, moving uh, over the last two decades and seeing how U.S. foreign policy has played out, a lot of people would say that this militarization of the war on terror and the counterinsurgency methods um, implemented were largely a failure because um, terrorism is now a bigger problem than it was before. Um, we find that we are bogged down in wars in Afghanistan and Iraq and the region, the Middle East, um, is you know, much more insecure now than it was um, before 9-11. So there's a lot of policy discussion um, that we might be talking about now about, you know, should we be having a different view about counterterrorism? So maybe um, Elon mentioned um, President Obama earlier and trying to pull out of Iraq um, and, you know, draw down earlier. Um, that is that is absolutely true. And he did want to sort of shift the policy away from what George Bush was doing and the policy of, um, you know, in essence, seeing uh, us versus them, a very black and white um, war on terror strategy. Um, but in fact, uh, Obama found himself, um, you know, kind of uh, bogged down just as much, I would say, as um, Bush was, um, simply because it is so hard to undo these um, policies that were, you know, put in place um, under the, the Bush administration. Mm. Can we talk about the human cost of these wars? You know, often and rightly so, we focus on the number of U.S. veterans who died in Iraq and Afghanistan. I believe it's 7,000, uh, another 8,000 contractors, according to uh, Brown University's Costs of War project. But they also uh, note another number, over 800,000 people directly killed in the conflicts, many more indirectly uh, since that day. And another cost, displacement, 37 million people have fled their homes because of wars and conflicts since 2001. Something that um, I don't think people think about, Elon, uh, who aren't involved in the international community, uh, the human consequences since that day. Sure, and the human consequences are, are dramatic. Um, I do think we need to there's a lot of things that have happened since 9-11 um, in the Middle East, and a lot of it has to do with bad U.S. policy. I wouldn't put it all on U.S. policy, like these numbers, like 37 million, for example, displaced. Um, I mean, I think you've also had, you know, governments in the Middle East um, that were not very responsive to their people, uh, that were very repressive, um, and, you know, we're not meeting the needs of their people that caused a series of, um, I would say, uh, 
basically uprisings um, that at the beginning were, were peaceful or were small conflicts. Uh, and then you also had state-on-state -state competition um, with countries like Iran, Saudi Arabia, others all intervening in these conflicts, making them worse, Turkey, Russia, and the United States, right? Us playing that same role, you know, arming the Syrian opposition, for example, doing just enough to make the war worse without actually solving it. Um, or obviously, we are the ones who triggered everything in, in Iraq unnecessarily. Um, you know, Afghanistan is a much more complicated question. Uh, because I think there the intervention was much more justified. But, you know, so um, you look at all these things together and it's been a number of factors that have really brought about these calamitous personal impacts for people um, over the last uh, 20 years. Um, but one of, and one of the results of our super narrow focus on counterterrorism and, and our also not just a focus on counterterrorism, but our focus on military solutions exclusively um, almost entirely. When we look at other parts of the world, our policies much more dependent on economic influence and diplomacy in a place like Asia, for example. Um, or in the Middle East, we always go military first. Um, and I feel like that's also a, a consequence of 9-11 and the, the aftermath. Um, and all these things have just exacerbated, you know, problems that already existed in the region or were coming on their own. And rather than the U.S. playing kind of a stabilizing force, um, we have just made things worse. Um, and that's one of the reasons I think we really need to reconsider uh, how we've approached this. And so many people uh, are really asking at this point, you know, uh, is this really the way we should be doing things? Um, and I think are thinking about alternatives to that. Mm. Caroline, how do you respond? What would be some alternatives to the militarization uh, that we heard Elon talk about? Well, I would say that um, maybe looking back at uh, things that have worked historically. So, for example, um, countries like um, Great Britain and Germany had experienced terrorism from the 60s to the 1980s. And um, initially they expanded the role of government and tried to curtail civil liberties. And they realized that, you know, with pressure from public opinion, that that wasn't going to work, that it's better to rely on a criminal justice model and local police to sort of, you know, uh, contained terror locally. It is that moving from the militarization and, and taking it all big to um, dealing with this on a completely different level that will um, starve maybe terrorists of some of the attention that they seek, will not you know, necessarily fuel uh, some of the anti-West sentiment that comes along with, you know, the U.S. intervention. Uh, so, so in that sense, I think um, the United States withdrawing. I know, I know a lot of people would say, well, we withdrew from Iraq and look what happened. There was ISIS. Or if we're not going to get involved in Syria, it's just going to get worse. But really, there's no evidence that U.S. involvement in these cases had made has made anything better. Uh, so we really need to rethink um, those kinds of policies. And I would also add that um, the policy of militarization abroad and these, um, you know, questionable counterinsurgency strategies um, have directly affected 
um, democracy at home have directly affected, you know, what it means to to be American. Um, so we might talk about things like the so-called Muslim ban mm -hmm. or the travel ban, you know, depending on on who you talk to, or our position on Guantanamo Bay and how that's evolved from the time of George Bush, then under Obama, and now now under Trump. These are really important issues to see whether or not the United States is going to um, uh, respect, for example, the right for people to be protected under international law, and then domestically the right for equality for, you know, um, for example, for Muslims and so forth. So it, it does have this profound effect for foreign policy abroad, but it also goes hand in hand with fundamentally, you know, who we are as a nation. Hmm. Caroline, could you touch on when we think about uh, warfare, uh, the use of, of drones and, and how that changed uh, our views of war? Oh, absolutely. Um, I think one of the um, big you know, side effects of 9-11 was this idea that we could use drones um, to you know, fix the problems in Afghanistan and Iraq uh, and elsewhere. Um, I would say that, you know, what, what's interesting about drones is if we, we don't really have, um, you know, laws governing drones today, right? We might look to international law and Geneva conventions and laws of warfare, but those tend to apply to conventional warfare. If we were to track uh, the history of drones and drone use, um, the first time that the United States is using drones is in 1991 um, for surveillance during the Gulf War. And then again in 1993 in the Balkans to monitor um, Serbian tank and troop movement. It is during 9-11 in 2001 when we first actually fit drones with missiles and the CIA um, was trying to target a Taliban Supreme Commander, um, Mullah uh, Mohammed Omar, in October of 2001, and it failed. And then the, a year later, we incorrectly um, dropped a bomb on someone who we assumed was Osama bin Laden. But what's crucial is that during the period of 2008 to 2006 under Obama, he dropped a total of 563 drones, countries like Pakistan, um, Somalia, Yemen. That is such a large increase from Bush, who um, purportedly dropped about 57 uh, bombs. So we're talking about a lot of civilian casualties. And, you know, the U.S. defended this at the time as a precision instrument, right, these um uh, unpiloted precision weapons that would avoid collateral damage of aerial bombings, but in fact, um, it opens up a whole new set of um, uh, problems for the right the right use of warfare, the protection of civilians, and so forth. And actually, once we see the Trump administration, um, you know, kind of expanding our understanding of the use of drones and um, going beyond what we would imagine the conventional battlefield, giving latitude to commanders to strike without targets actually being an active threat to the United States, which was used in the, uh, as an excuse for um, previous administrations. And we know that you know, at, earlier this year, um, Donald Trump uh, ordered the execution, or I should say assassination, or um, targeted mm -hmm. killing of uh, 
Soleimani, a um, Iranian uh, senior commander, um, which surprised a lot of people um, who didn't think think that that you know U.S. policy would move in that direction, right? The targeting of people who were seen as legitimate, um, you know, uh, heads of state or politicians or leaders. You can join our conversation as we talk about foreign policy after 9-11, the number 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, Ellie's calling in from South Windsor. Ellie, you're on the show. Hello. Um, good morning, Lucy. Um, I just wanted, although I, I recognize that foreign policy is extremely important and how 9-11 completely changed the landscape with that, I want to speak a little bit about uh, how 9-11 affected us millennials. I was 12 years old living in Ridgewood, Queens, when 9-11 happened, and I was in the seventh grade. And um, where I was located in Queens, you could see the skyline right away. Um, so as soon as the attacks happened, parents uh, started scrambling to pick up their children from school and... Um, Buses weren't running, none of the public transportation was running, and I had to walk all the way home and to see the atrocity that had just happened and, and, and the smoke. And honestly, there was a major schism in my life before and after that day. Mm. Um, as a teen, as a preteen, um, I think it definitely, and especially as a New Yorker, it definitely affected um, a lot of, a lot of, uh, the decisions I made after that point, even, even at the age of 12, um, I had a really difficult time with 9-11, although I didn't lose anyone. Um, some of the kids in my school had um, emergency response workers, uh, as parents, uh, parents working in the towers. Um, it, it was, it was a very, very difficult time. Um, and I think it made all of us um, appreciate life a little bit more um, and honestly be a little bit more fatalistic in a sense, um, taking more risks. Um, I could definitely vouch for that. Um, I saw a lot of my peer group just go in the opposite direction um, so, um, yeah, I, I think that for me, I'm 31 years old. I often think about how different that critical period of, of my life might have looked like had I not witnessed the events um, as such a close proximity. Well, thank you, Ellie, uh, for sharing those thought with, thoughts with us here on uh, Where We Live. And you're right, how, how that day impacted so many people, uh, both domestically and abroad. Uh, we're going to continue our discussion after the break uh, with my guest, Elon Goldenberg, Director of the Middle East Security Program at the Center for New American Security, and Caroline Sayedge, Associate Professor and also Acting Director of the Global Islamic Studies Program at Connecticut College. Uh, now we're in this pandemic, and is this going to be the pivot point uh, to change uh, how the U.S. Uh, deals with uh, our partners abroad and elsewhere. You can join our conversation, too. You can add your comments on Facebook or on Twitter at Where We Live.
This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up Monday, Connecticut Governor Ned Lamont joins us as more students head back to school. Will Connecticut open further? What questions do you have for him? You can join us again. That's Monday. Now, uh, one of my guests, Elon Goldenberg, wrote in the Washington Post recently, the COVID-19 crisis may finally be the moment that breaks America free from this counterterrorism fixation and forces us to view the world differently, precisely because, like 9-11, its impact will penetrate our collective psyche. Uh, Elon Goldenberg, again, from the Center for New American Security. Talk through uh, some of the mistakes. Again, we've already talked about some of the mistakes made after uh, 9-11, but now that we're in this moment, this pandemic, uh, what our leaders should be thinking about as we shift our priorities? Will we, especially in this presidential election year? Sure. And actually, I'll just start by actually just reacting to Ellie, the, the, the woman who, who the guest before the break. Um, and, and this ties back to it only to say that like she was 12 years old, a 9-11, and it really shaped the way she grew up. Well, my daughter is 12 years old right now um, mm-hmm. and doing virtual school and experiencing this. Um, and this is going to be the defining geopolitical kind of moment for her generation. Um And that is why, and for so many of us, and that is why it is going to be not just a a moment for us to personally absorb, but a moment that fundamentally is going to change foreign policy and international relations. Um, You know, after 9-11, the the debate really was between sort of the neoconservatives and people who had been arguing for a long time that the U.S. must take a more aggressive unilateral approach to the world during the unipolar moment. And those who were skeptical about that. That debate had been going on throughout the 90s, but it was this moment of trauma that created the space and the vacuum to then fundamentally reshape the, the policy. And that happened over a few years. Um, and the same thing happened after World War II, right? I mean, there'd been, a, and after World War I, there'd been this long debate between the U.S. playing the world's sort of leader role and trying to build an international order versus isolationism. We chose that isolationism after World War I. We chose, uh, um, you know, this opportunity to build institutions after World War II, institutions like the UN and NATO and the Marshall Plan. And those things were planned out by um, Franklin Delano Roosevelt and Winston Churchill starting in like early 1942 um, with the Atlantic Charter. And so, you know, there's now, there's been debates going on in U.S. foreign policy for the last few years. Um, and now is going to be the moment, I think, that we'll have to choose where things really will be reshaped in the aftermath of COVID. Um, mm. And the debate has been between, I would say, really Donald Trump's America and the perspective that he puts out there, which is quite us isolationist, U.S. pullback, but also very nationalistic, militaristic. You know, we're going to confront China with everything we've got. Um, we're going to make that the problem. It's kind of xenophobic. You can see coming out of COVID-19 in the aftermath, an American foreign policy that continues to go in that direction. We leave the WHO, we, we um, you know, close our borders, we change the way supply chains are handled, uh, all because of this experience of the virus coming from somewhere else, coming from beyond our borders and penetrating our country and creating this fear. Um, but the alternative is, and I think this is the kind of policy Joe Biden is pushing um, and others have been pushing, um, is, no, this is a moment where we reshape in the other direction. And we think about the fact that we need to think about these transnational challenges 
beyond terrorism and beyond the military. Issues like, you know, pandemic uh, disease, um, issues like, um, uh, you know, global warming, which actually has, I think, a very similar approach, right? It's kind of this, the scientists are warning about it. They have been for a long time. Everybody knows it's an issue. Government leaders deny it. Nothing actually happens uh, until it's too late. Uh, and in some ways, it's a bigger crisis than COVID-19, but also happening much more in slow motion. So you could see a world in which in the aftermath of uh, you know, the pandemic, we build more international institutions. We tackle more transnational challenges in this way. Um, we, um, we also look to um, you know, rethink some of the ways in which it's at home in terms of you know, our economy. Uh, in turn, to address you know the more vulnerable and deal with issues of inequality that have become so sharpened during the pandemic, where you know middle class and upper middle class who can work at home have not suffered, and those working on the front lines um, have who are less um, you know advantaged have suffered greatly, um, and, and who've also the ones who've lost most of the jobs. Uh, and so you could see this going one of two ways. Um, and in terms of what it means for U.S. counterterrorism policy and our Middle East policy, I think you're going to see a de-emphasis of that. You're going to see much more focus on China and on Asia. Um, and that actually can be really good in the counterterrorism space to take a more, to really put it where it belongs. It matters, but it doesn't matter as much as it has for the last 20 years in dominating our foreign policy. Um, but it could also be dangerous in terms of we, we could come up with some very irresponsible approaches to China, for example, in the aftermath. I mean, I think China is a challenge. I think it is a near-peer competitor. I think it's a country we should be worried about. I think it, you know, its system of governance is generally, you know, repressive and it's trying to use international institutions to sort of mold the world and its image. Um, and so it requires an American response. Um, but it just needs to be a smart response, not an over-militarized response. And one that also recognizes that on some challenges, like the environment, global warming, we're going to end pandemics. We're going to have to find a way to work with China. And Elon, so, I wanted, I mean, Elon we just have a couple of minutes left. I sure. wanted to have Caroline respond uh, to your points. Uh, if Joe Biden were elected, Caroline, do you think that as Elon um, has laid out that the priorities will change uh, considering uh, Biden's been around for some time? He was inter involved in foreign policy for many years as a senator. He was involved in the drawdown of the Iraq war. What are your thoughts? It's just about three minutes to go. Sure. Um, I would say that um, uh, maybe we shouldn't view Joe Biden as someone who would come in as a savior, because I think a lot of people would, um, for example, uh, criticize his policy um, in the Middle East um, for, for example, suggesting that Iraq be partitioned um, when we know that that might, you know, fuel, for example, sectarianism. Uh, and, you know, he has an, uh, other um, aspects of his um, voting, for example, of uh, building a wall um, that now Trump is, for example, also pushing for. So I wouldn't say that he's necessarily the savior, but I would believe he does offer alternatives in recognizing that we have anti-globalization and populism and environmental challenges and to worry about restoring the economy that Trump is not even recognizing, right? So if Biden um, is looking for, for example, a comprehensive path to reform and a path to citizenship, um, Trump's language is more about why don't we um, take these um, illegal 
uh, immigrants and then throw them in Guantanamo Bay. I would imagine that following Biden's calls, we're seeing a more productive shift. Um, it might not be easy, but you know there is hope in that, obviously, than uh, the kinds of proposals coming out of the Trump administration, for sure. Caroline Sayedge, again, is Associate Professor of Government and International Relations and Acting Director of the Global Islamic Studies Program at Connecticut College. Caroline, thank you for joining us. We appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Also, Elon Goldenberg, Director of the Middle East Security Program at the Center for New American Security. You've given us a lot to think about, Elon. We appreciate your perspective as well. Well, thank you. Thanks for having uh, me. Today's show produced by Carmen Baskoff. Our technical producer is Kat Pastor. You can learn more about the show by downloading Where We Live on your favorite podcast app. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Again, Connecticut Governor Ned Lamont joins us uh, on Zoom, or by phone rather, on Monday to answer our questions and yours. We hope you join us. Have a great weekend.